Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. Looking forward to that. So, let's start. The Feast of Tabernacles in review. Last week, we completed the study of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It is the second feast associated with the Feast of Tabernacles season, all in the Jewish month of Tishri. It is the number seven of the feast of the Lord established by God when he led his people out of Egypt with many signs and wonders and displays of his great power. And actually, the pastor's been speaking of that on, on, uh, on the morning prayer, so you get an idea of some of the powers and wonders that's going in there as they led his people out of Egypt. Seven being the number of per- perfection and completion, this, this feast will show us the plan to completion for us as believers and also what the plan is for the nation of, the pro- of promise, which is Israel. It falls just five days after Yom Kippur is completed on the 15th day of the month. Now, Yom Kippur was completed on the, on the 10th day of the month, so we've got five days in between. As we have highlighted on many occasions, we see God's manif- magnificent plan of redemption unfolded in these feasts in the past, in the present, and prophetically speaking, yes to come. You know, God says he is the, I mean, Jesus said he is the beginning and the end, you know, so that's what, that's what we're talking. He covers the whole thing from beginning, and the, from the past, the present, and the future. We have seen through the Passover season the representation of peace with God, the establishment of a relationship with God through believing in, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have seen with the fe- Feast of Weeks or Pentecost how we receive the power of God through the indwelling presence and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now with this last feast season, we are seeing that last feast season of feast season of tabernacles, which includes the other two. But we are seeing the rest of, in God as shown in the Feast of Trumpets, the rapture of the church, and the Day of Atonement, where our judgment was taken by Jesus on the cross, and our future judgment of works and rewards is to come at the judgment seat of Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles represents the completed or finished work of God in both this present age in which we live and in the lives of individual believers. It's meant to teach us spiritual maturity and rest for our souls. How many, how, many, how many of us know, I mean, how many of you come to the level of maturity in Christ where you can breathe easy and know that you don't have to do anything else? God's already done all the heavy lifting for us. Isn't that great to know? This does not mean sinless perfection, for as long as we are in this fallen physical body, we will remain on the path of sanctification process until we go to be with the Lord where the rapture occurs. Anybody say, come on, rapture? Be all right with me. But it does mean that we are to reach a level of spiritual maturity where we continue to grow and learn how to rest in God for who He is and what He has done for us and who we are in Christ. The spirit is reborn, the soul is being renewed and transformed, and the body will get there on that day. The Apostle Paul was a great example of one who knew better than anyone about his imperfection, but also about his place of maturity in Christ and resting in God. Here is how he expressed himself in a couple of familiar passages. Philippians 3, 12 through 14 says... Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have, uh, to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Philippians 4. Uh, 4, chapter 4, 11 through 13, uh, Paul says this. He says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. 
everywhere and all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, before we move on from here, I want to go back, I want to go back to the future for a brief moment concerning another aspect of this particular feast, which we will see later in our study. It's the millennial reign of Christ. You know, we talked about dispensations in the millennial reign of Christ or the millennium. That's the last dispensation as far as dispensations goes, as we talked about, I think, in lesson two. And as a small spoiler alert, here are a few passages dealing with Israel's future to whet your appetite for the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Read and study these passages, and we'll deal with them later. So really, I want you to take, when you, when you get back and you have time, go through these two passages, these three passages, and look at them and dig with them. Uh, do the cross study, crossword study or cross-passage study and look at them. But here, here's Hosea 5.15. It says, I will, re- I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And then a little farther down in Hosea 6, 1 through 3, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning, and he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. And then part of the key to understanding that passage is written in 2 Peter 3.8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So do a little picking apart on that and see what you come up with. We'll take this a little further next, next time. Now, let's continue with the details and historical background of this feast, starting with the key Bible passage that we've been reading through in Leviticus 23. And this passage will cover 33 through 43. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for for seven days to the Lord. And on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall make an offering. Made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offering, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and beside all your Free will offerings which you are to give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days, and on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branch of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year, It shall be a statute forever for your generations. In your generations, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So God called these feasts holy convocations. This is kind of a review of some of the things we talked about before. Called them holy convocations. What is meant by holy convocations, the Hebrew word mikra, is that they are, they are times of sacred assembly and worship. They're basically dress rehearsals. 
God wanted his people to be in corporate worship, and I believe that this still, this still applies to his people of the new covenant as well. He wants us gathered together to worship him. I like the implication coming from the word Hebrew word mikro, which means dress rehearsal, like the practice exercise for a coming and planned event. That's exactly what these feasts have been showing us, that this life is temporary and that we are practicing for the day we meet the Lord. There's a lot of meaning to that if you think about it. This life is our seed time for eternity. The psalmist, or I believe it was Moses, probably wrote this in Psalm 90.12. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.1, Apostle Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, which actually means tabernacle, keep that in mind, if this tent, tabernacle, is destroyed, we have a building. Interpret that, you can say a home. We have a building, a home from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heavens, in the heavens. This is a reminder to us as believers that tent is temporary, this journey is temporary. When You know, it's like when you go out camping and you go into a tent, that's temporary, but when you come home, you're in your home. That's a permanent place. Think about that for what that, that means to you and also about what we're talking about in tabernacles. These feasts were also meant to be a time of remembrance, whether remembering the celebrating uh, of Passover that shows his deliverance out of Egypt or the celebration of first fruits, remember his provision in the harvest, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which reminds his people of the time they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and had to live in temporary booths or tabernacles before reaching the promised land. This last one we will see in detail in this study. So let's get into the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, as, it's, uh, as it is in uh, Hebrew. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, was often called by other names, such as the Feast of Ingathering, and we'll cover that in the next uh, part two uh, pretty good. The Feast of Ingathering, because it was the very end of the harvest season. There's dual meanings right there. And this, but anyway, this one will say it's because it's the very end of, end of harvest season. The fruit of the land has been reaped and gathered so the people could rest from their labors. It was also called the Feast of the Booths because they were instructed to build temporary booths to live in during this feast. Now, when we talk about the harvest of, of things, just a side note here, we're talking about the grape harvest, the uh, uh, pomegranate harvest, the... the uh, uh, olive harvest and all those things like that. You know, we've already had the barley harvest in the other feast. We had the wheat harvest. This is everything else that comes to to uh, uh, comes to fruit by that time, and they're harvesting all these things and they're bringing all bringing it all in. So this feast is the last of the annual feasts that the Lord ordered for the children of Israel. It is the seventh of the feast, and we know that the number seven is the number that represents perfection, but also completion. It began on the fifteenth of the month Tishri and concluded on the twenty second. So lest we forget, the central point of all seven feasts is that God's complete plan of redemption is reflected in the structure and design of these feasts, and the spiritual essence of the feast is fulfilled by the life and works of Jesus. Remember, we talked about peace, power, and rest for our, our previous lessons. This last feast season, the Feast of Tabernacles, as we have said before, represents rest in God, and some aspects are yet to be fulfilled completely by the Lord. These three feasts as part of the tabernacle feast season or season are, rep, are representing rest because of these final works of Jesus. We've seen uh, just a little quick review of those in trumpets. Feast of trumpets are being what we, we were told to be watchful. The beginning of the new year, remember they, they blew the, the trumpets, uh, the shofar on the new year, listening in anticipation for the sound of the last trumpet, ready for the rapture. Are you all ready for the rapture? Celebrating our warrior king Jesus who has defeated the enemy, 
But it's also talking about Israel's awakening and their repentance during that time. The Day of Atonement, we're talking about the church at the judgment seat of Christ, baptism by fire for their works done in the flesh, the purifying the bride, seven years of earthly tribulation for every, everyone else alive on earth. When, you know, we talked about Jacob's trouble. It's the time of Jacob's trouble and Israel's cleansing and restoration. And then tabernacles is Jesus' second coming. That's what we'll see out of this. That The ultimate thing we'll see is Jesus' second coming to defeat the nations gathered against Israel, the reign of Christ with his saints in the millennium, Israel back in their land and at peace with no threats from her enemies and Jesus with them. It'll be a great time of rejoicing. You can, you can imagine rejoicing for a thousand years, right? Historical background. Like most of the other feasts, the Feast of Tabernacle celebration follows along with instructions given for the other feasts associated with a harvest that they are to be celebrated when they come into the land. See, remember, these feasts were given to them while they were still in the wilderness, so they had no land that they were plowing and reaping a harvest on. So these feasts were projected forward when they do come into the land, the land of uh, milk and honey, that uh, that's, these, that's when these feasts would really be celebrated in their proper way. But he's giving them to them ahead of time and preparing them for that. Celebrating the harvest cannot be done until you are in the land and actually growing and harvesting. This last feast is what the Jewish people really sink their teeth into because the instructions they receive received and how they celebrated this feast. And you'll get it when we when we uh, get into it. Now, there's a few typos in here, so forgive me. This there should have been without the E. But anyway, their instructions were to build, to build makeshift booths or tabernacles out in the open air, covered, cover them with the boughs of trees, whatever was available, palm branches, olive trees, branches, myrtle branches, etc. These the Hebrew The Hebrew word for these booths is sukkah or sukkahs. Sukkah is the word that should be. Thus, the name of the feast as Sukkot, which is basically plural for Sukkot, is Sukkot. The family would live in, sleep in, and have their meals in these booths for seven days, kind of like camping out. For them, it was a real fun and family time. This construction of booths was to remind them of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after they left Egypt, living in temporary shelters constructed of what they had at hand. Remember, they, were, they didn't, they come out, they were living in tents for 40 years, and uh, they, so they, they, uh, uh, they, they just had to use what they had after they left Egypt, living in the temporary shelters constructed, constructed of what they had at hand. This was to remind them that the reason for wondering was because of the unbelief and disobedience of their forefathers who never got to enter the promised land. Remember, the, they sent in 12 spies, two come back with a good report, 10 come back with a bad report. So because of that, they all died in the wilderness except those two. Um, all of them that were uh, believing in that and didn't want to go in. Anyway, constructing and living in these booths was, symboli was also symbolized the temporary condition of their unbelief and not permanent hardness. See, it's only a temporary condition, so they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't end up having permanent hardness. Once again, I think we, need, we will see the showing forth of the great mercy and grace of God in dealing with his people Israel. Aren't you glad, aren't you happy that God has good, great mercy and great grace for us? He shows it to his, his, uh, his people are promised too. All through these 40 years, God protected them with the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. He gave them manna to eat and quail when they grumbled and the rock which poured out water that seemed to follow them everywhere they went. Their clothes and their shoes never wore out. Eventually, God brought them into their rest, into the land he had promised. And I should have, what, what I should have done, I should have capitalized that rock because that rock actually stands for Jesus and we'll see that uh, as it's revealed later on and when we're talking about he is the rock an interesting side note is we're talking about rest 
What did God instruct the Israelites concerning rest when he gave the Ten Commandments? Remember, he told them to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy and to rest. That was the Sabbath, the seventh day. Rest and no customary work. This feast is called the sabbatical feast. It represents the Sabbath rest in God's plan of redemption. In other words, when we get through with the Feast of Tabernacles, we'll know what the ultimate plan was for us that started with the Passover, which he died for us on the cross. Basically, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And then he reveals us to us in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles the, uh, the uh, final, and, uh, final step in the plan of redemption, which means rest, which appropriately named the sabbatical feast or the Sabbath. Remember, I said that they constructed the booth loosely on the roof of their dwelling or away from under any trees or overhangs so they could see the stars at night. This would remind them that they were only pilgrims on this earth passing through this life and would one day enter into the eternal rest that God has prepared for them when God himself would come and live among them permanently as spoken by the prophets as spoken by the prophets in Ezekiel and Zechariah. This is what they said in Ezekiel 43, uh, 7 through 9. He says, and, and he said to me, talking about God speaking to the Son of Man who is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was called the Son of Man too in that particular scripture but he says son of man this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever no more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places when they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me they, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst. And then Zechariah 2.10 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Don't you know they were rejoicing at that? That whole book of Zechariah, you need to read it because it's got so many prophetic uh, things to say about Israel and the, and the time when they will spend with the Lord, but it's a good one to read. The Feast of Tabernacles was meant to be a time of great rejoicing because of these aspects. It was a time of entering into rest and a time of rejoicing in the goodness of God in what he had provided for them in the harvest and the crops and of remembering his deliverance from Egypt. This passage in Deuteronomy makes a few re references to rejoicing. It says in, in the Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15, it says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the works of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. See, he's talking about rejoicing. He's wanting you to be happy. This is a happy occasion. And think about it. When they've come out of there and they've got, they've got their harvests and crops uh, brought in and then their remembrance of the great deliverance from uh, Egypt, it was, that's probably the greatest thing they could remember at that time. Also, it was an absolutely great time of rejoicing because of the obvious results of the Day of Atonement, just five days previous to that, where the nation had gone through before God been forgiven because of the blood shed for them and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Remember when the priest, like last day of atonement, uh, we talked about that. The priest went in and sprinkled the, the blood of the goat, the, the sin offering, on the mercy seat. And they were once again reconciled to their God. So how was this feast, 
fulfilled by Jesus. There are two rituals that came out of this feast celebration that need to be noted where we talked about how we see Jesus in fulfilling this feast. The first one we're going to talk about, and the only one we're going to, the second one we'll cover the next time, but the first is the pouring of water or the water libation ceremony. The water libation ceremony was one of the most popular parts of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. This ceremony followed the daily sacrifices. It is no longer practiced today, but it was being practiced during the Second Temple era and during the time of Christ. Jesus used this ceremony to make a bold statement. Now, I want you to understand something. This, this wasn't part of the, the passage from Leviticus 23. They didn't have a, what they called a, a, a libation service, but it did say that they had their drink offerings. So that stems from that, and then they built upon that in it when they had the temple times, and especially in the second temple era is when they uh, 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 celebrated and, and, and uh, did this, uh, this uh, ceremony. And, of course, it's specifically... Uh, during Jesus' time, when that, which was the second temple era. So remember, the first temple was the temple of Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians when they took uh, the, the Jewish people off into captivity, and they rebuilt the, the temple, the second temple, and this is the one we're referring to at the time of Jesus. A libation is defined as a pouring of a liquid offering as a part of a religious ritual. Some translations call it the drink offering. So you, when you see it written, probably most of the time you're going to see it written like in the New King James Version, and a lot of them you'll see it written most of the time as a drink offering. In most cases, the drink offering or libation was wine, such as with the sacrifices required in Leviticus and elsewhere. In this case, it is a water libation. One reason the water libation ritual was so popular in the Second Temple days was the accompanying ceremony of the water drawing, which took place at night when water was drawn from the pool of, of Siloam. Now, most people would say if they're from Texas, you probably call that Siloam, you know, like Siloam Springs, Arkansas, or something like that. But the actual, it's, it's Siloam, pool of Siloam. But anyway, that's just the way it's the, the pronunciation it gives in the uh, strong concordance or whatever like that. But you can call it Siloam if you want to. I like the way Siloam sounds better anyway. Texan, Texan for Siloam for the next morning's water libation. Each day for seven consecutive days, a priest would walk up a ramp leading to the bronze altar. Remember, we're in the temple. The bronze altar located in the temple court and pour a jug full of water from the pool into a bowl that drained into the altar. The, the ceremony of water drawing was a jubilant occasion, as was the whole feast. The Mishnah, remember, the Mishnah was the written record of the oral traditions of the of the priests and rabbis and things like that, so it was written down. But they... This is one of the things they wrote in that Mishnah. It states that he that has never seen the joy of the ceremony of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. And it's written in that one particular one called Sukkah 51a. You can even look that up if you want to read it yourself. As the ceremony took place, uh, the Levites played lyres, trumpets, harps, cymbals, and other instruments while other Levites sang. Now remember, the Levites were the, the, were, were the uh, tribe that was picked out of all the 12 tribes. The Levites were the, picked out for the temple service. So they had these jobs to do. They, they were the musicians. They were the praise and worshipers. They were the ones that opened the doors of the temple. They were the ones that did the, the hard work and, and all those kind of things. But they had a specific role. They were, they were uh, for that particular uh, thing. They, a lot of them cut wood and, and things like that for the sacrifices and what have you. In the temple area, Three golden candlesticks nearly 75 feet high were lit by young men climbing tall ladders, and the light from these candlesticks could be seen throughout all Jerusalem. Respected men 
of faith danced and sang in front of these candlesticks while carrying burning torches. As the ceremony progressed through the night, the priest blew the shofar three times in the manner of uh, each night, in the manner of the text of Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw waters out of the wells of salvation. We'll, we'll, we'll actually have that verse again here a little later. The evening was characterized by exuberant joy. It was a wonderful occasion, and nobody, no one wanted to miss. Uh, let me tell you, it was a, it was a joyous occasion, but let me, let me just give you a little idea of what the, what the workload was for those priests and Levites and things like that. You know, they, and you can go back and look in Numbers 29, but I, I think you, wanna, you, you need to hear this because uh, these priests, there was, a, there was actually a statement in the, in the Mishnah in that same passage there where these priests are talking about that these seven days are the hardest days of the, of the whole year for them because of all the heavy work that they have to do during this time. Listen, this is what happened. And you can read it in Numbers 29. Go back and read it, but uh, verses 12 through 34. These are the sacrifices for each day, and, and this is just part of it. But uh, each day, they, for seven days, this is, they, they started their sacrifice out with uh, 13 bullocks on the first day as a burnt offering. Then they had 14 rams, and then they had uh, 12 lambs, I think, or something like that. So they, ate, so they had 13 bullocks, 14 rams, and then uh, uh, 14 lambs, or 12, whatever that, what's, what's uh, 98 divided by 12 right quick? Anybody got a 16? Something like that. Anyway, that's their load they had for every day. Now, they, they, on day one, they did 13 bullocks. On day 12, or two, they did 12. On day three, they did 11 bullocks. On day four, they did 10. On day five, they did nine. On day eight, they did eight, or six, they did eight. On day seven, they did seven. So if you add all those up, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, and 7, for those seven days, that's 70 bullocks. 70 bullocks, 14 rams, 98 uh, lambs, all without blemish. And, and one thing we're going to cover in the next part of this is what a lot of people don't know what, the, what was happening at that time is these bullocks and these, these offerings at this time during the Feast of Tabernacles as we'll see when we talk about more about the millennial kingdom in that. But that was actually the offering for the nations. In other words, uh, if you go back and look in Genesis, I think it's uh, chapter 10 or 11, uh, either before or after the Tower of Babel, there were actually, uh, at that time, when all of them uh, dispersed and, uh, you know, at the Tower of Babel and all the different, you know, they had to go because of their, uh, they confused the languages, there were only 70 nations identified. So every nation in the world, every ethnic group, every person in the world can always trace back to the 70 nations that were designated at that time. And the people of Israel were ordained to give offerings for those nations. In other words, we, the nation of Israel was the nation that was actually supposed to lead the world. In, uh, in, in by, they were God's people, so they were to protect the world basically by offering up for them, even though they were offering uh, and the people of the world were ignorant of that. That was part of the process. We'll get into that more. But it's just interesting that they, those priests had a hard day. When you talk about 13 bullocks, and I mean, altogether it was 182 offerings or something like that over that period of time. And they, they were slaughtering. And, and these bullocks, they were burnt offerings. In other words, they were totally consumed by the fire. So you can imagine how many, having an offering like those offerings like that, that was every day, plus the typical offerings they had every day, plus the sin offerings and, and the evening services and everything. Those priests were so busy 
that they said, at what I read in there, they only had like three or four hours of sleep at night, and they had to get back up in the morning and start all over the process. So they had like 24 courses of priests, and I suppose they probably took, uh, during the temple times, they probably took turns, you know, it was, hey, it's your, your, uh, your day today to get, take care of all that stuff, and I can imagine. But they, they didn't get much rest, but it was still a joyful time because of what they were celebrating. So anyway, it was a wonderful occasion that nobody wanted to miss. So in that next paragraph, it's important to know something about this water. We're talking about the pool of Siloam, or Siloam. It originates from a spring just east of Jerusalem called the Spring of Gihon. Now, you can go look that up and, and see in the, in, the, in the concordance or in the uh, uh, Bible dictionaries or whatever like that. Usually when people talk about the Spring of Gihon, they're talking about the Spring of Siloam too at the same time. You can use it interchangeable. But anyway, the spring of Gihon, the original spring, is outside the walls of, uh, uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem. This spring was the place where King's da King David's son Solomon was anointed king of Israel. You can see that in 1 Kings 145. King Hezekiah, which was like the 13th king after David, or, or after, he was the 13th king in the line of kings, he later redirected the water of this spring, the spring of Gihon, into the city of Jerusalem through a long underground conduit known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. Within the walls of Jerusalem, the waters of the Gihon ran into a pool named the Pool of Siloam. This the same Pool of Siloam is also referred to in the New Testament. Now, I want to tell you something before we get to the New Testament and that passage about uh, that, what we're going to do here. This is a... this. At that time, this was probably an engineering miracle because they had to dig this. Hezekiah had to, had his, had to have his people dig. This was a tunnel that was 2,200 2, foot long from the spring of Gihon to the spring to where they wanted to take it uh, to the spring of uh, Siloam. So they did it underground. And the, the miracle of this, they say, the miracle of the, the, the Hezekiah tunnel is that they had one crew start at one end and they had another crew start at the end where the spring was and they, and they were supposed to meet in the middle. Now, you know, they didn't have all the engineering things that we had we have nowadays to, in order to find out where this is going to be. And this is in solid rock. And so, believe it or not, they did end up, now they, they were all over the place. That tunnel is not straight. If, it, if they'd have took it just like the bird flies, they said it would have been a tunnel of about only 1,000 foot, but it, it intertwined underneath the city of uh, Jerusalem for over 2,000 feet, 2,200 feet, matter of fact. And so it was considered an engineering miracle just to get that in there. But what he was doing is he was securing a water source for Jerusalem because you know, they were at war back and forth with the Assyrians back then, and they were, they were, sometimes they'd run out of water. They didn't have an internal water source inside Jerusalem. So what this did was supply Jerusalem with an ongoing source of water. Even if they were in an under siege, they always had that water. And so, and, and keep in mind, this is important to remember later on as we talk about uh, the pool of uh, Siloam, uh, the Gihon was an artesian spring. In other words, it, it didn't flow all the time, but when it did flow, it flowed uh, at great times, you know, and they say most of the time, like during the during the winter, it would it would gush forth like five times. During the summer, it would do like two two times a day. And anyway, but it was an artesian spring, so it wasn't a constant. If it did, it was a low low uh, flow at times. But the big flows was at um, at two or three times a day. So it was at this pool that the Lord Jesus sent a man. Uh, blind from birth to wash off the clay. Y'all remember the story that he had applied to the man's eyes after washing in the pool, the man received his sight. That, here it is what it says in John 9, 6 through 7. A man born, he was born blind. 
and he and he so he he uh, he he said um, when he said these things he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and he said to him go wash in the pool of, of Siloam which is translated sent so he went and washed and came back seeing you need to go in there and read that full passage it's very interesting but from the start but anyway I just wanted to capture that part of it because this is involving the pool of Siloam. Uh, the pool of Siloam was considered a pool uh, where the sick people and poor people went to wash a lot of times. It was a pretty big pool, too. It could have been, I think, in, at times it was like 50 foot um, long, 18 foot wide, 19 foot deep. So it was a pretty good size uh, pool. Now, some more history about that. I think I've got that. Uh, some more history about the pool of Siloam, too. You've got to remember when the Babylonians took, uh, sieged and took Jerusalem in uh, 600 or back when they were it was 600 BC when they took uh, the Israelites off the captive they destroyed that pool that Hezekiah had, had made the pool and rerouted the uh, spring of Gihon into it well they wanted to destroy everything they could to keep people from living there in Jerusalem so they covered up the pool of Siloam and it remained covered and hidden until Nehemiah he was sent 70 years later he was sent or 60 years later I can't remember exactly he was sent back you know, he got the order, and I think it was Cyrus sent him back and said he could uh, start rebuilding uh, uh, Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. We, we've had many messages on that. But he went back, and part of his job was to restore the pool of Siloam. So he become, again, uh, uh, a, a live pool after those years that it was under, uh, had been covered up. And then we'll see it again here later. And then uh, it was also covered again, uh, after the Romans uh, destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was hidden again. Uh, so it covered up again during that time. And matter of fact, uh, archaeologists, archaeologists have just found that. They just found the, the original pool of Siloam only back is, is just in 2004. And they found it. And so it's, it's, it's reconstructed and back in service again or back uh, to where you can see it. Uh, again, so it's got a it's got a colored history as as a result of that. But the the pool of Siloam not only held historical significance, but in Jewish tradition, it also had a prophetic connotation. First, the scriptures speak of time when God's blessing to Israel, blessings to Israel would be like water poured out. In Isaiah forty four three, uh, we see it. It says, "For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants." and my blessing on your offspring. See, that's prophetic. He's saying, uh, he's talking through Isaiah, the prophet, and he's, he's telling, there's many passages in Isaiah that speak of the prophetic things that are going to happen for Israel. And he said, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Because the pool of uh, uh, Siloam, Siloam, also Gihon, uh, was the place where the kings of the house of David were anointed, such as Solomon, and that anointing was symbolic that anointing was symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual. The living waters of Siloam became associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Second, this outpouring was said to, was was to take place, uh, and this outpouring was to take place during the days where we're talking about the outpouring. He said, "I will pour out my Spirit on your descendants." It's supposed to take place in the days of the Messiah, the Anointed One, a descendant of King David, through whom salvation will come to Israel. And based again on that scripture we read earlier uh, in that one paragraph based on Isaiah 12, 3, it says the pool of Siloam became known as the well of salvation. 
and was associated with the Messianic age. Isaiah 12.3 says, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, the, the unique thing about that, I want to do a little quick word study on that, that word where it says from the wells of salvation, you can interpret that. That word interpreted in Hebrew is actually Yeshua. What's the name of Jesus in, in Hebrew? Yeshua, right? So you could have actually said from the wells of Jesus and, and meant the same thing, but it was transliterated into Jesus when, in, in the Greek. And, but it, if you go back and forth, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that you can see how that word comes from, you know, the wells of salvation is the name of Jesus because Jesus, the, he, the one who saves, he is our salvation. That's what Yeshua means. So think about that. So thus, the, to the people of the second temple days, the pouring of water on the altar of the Feast of Tabernacles was symbolic of, and a look forward to, the Holy Spirit poured out during the days of the Messiah. This water-pouring ceremony was for seven days. It was not repeated on the eighth day of the feast. This is significant because of what Jesus did. The last and greatest day of the feast, the climax of the entire feast, the eighth day, was the day which was called the Day of the Great Hosanna. It was a special Sabbath. In Hebrew, Hosanna means save now or deliver us. This was the day when the Jews would pray for rain and God's salvation through, through the Messiah. This is the day that Jesus made what some believe and what to be one of his greatest proclamations. Now, keep in mind, remember I said we're celebrating. They, they did that for seven days. They poured water. The water libation ceremony took place on seven days. Well, Jesus, this is what he did on the eighth day which was also included. You know, he said on the eighth day, you know, in the, in the passage. But anyway, this is what he did. He, st he stepped up and he said this in John 7, 37 through 39. He says, on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You've got to understand, too, the, the circumstances of this. Let me give you a picture of what's going on here. John, in John chapter 7. See, John, he was, I mean, Jesus, he was back in Galilee. And this was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was time that all Jews were, all Jewish males were supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so his brothers were mocking him, said, Are you, let's go, let's load up and go to, to uh, Jerusalem. And there you can show your power. And, you know, they were unbelieving at the time. They didn't believe. And so they, they were unbelievers, and they, they were mocking Jesus and said, well, aren't you going to go to Jerusalem and show your great power and miracles and wonders and everything like that? And Jesus said, no, I'm not going. Well, his brothers left. They went on to the, to the uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and he stayed back. Well, later he went, but he went secretly because he knew that the Jews were after him. The Jews were trying to kill him. The Pharisees, and you can read that in John chapter 7, verse 32, just prior to that, five verses prior to that. But the, the Pharisees and chief priests, when they found out that he was in town, they, they sent officers to take him because he had been teaching in the temple. You know, about he had slipped into Jerusalem, and about midways into the feast, he was, he was teaching in the temple. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests heard about it, and they sent officers to go uh, take hold of him, but they couldn't find him. Jesus had entered Jerusalem secretly, and after he had been, after he had stayed back in Galilee, after he was, after he, they had mocked him, you know, because he, but because he told his brothers, he said, "My time has not yet come." And so, anyway, you can also read it in Mark eleven eighteen, where the scribes and chief priests sought how they might destroy him. They were after him. They they wanted him. So you can understand, Jesus was there, but he was under 
he was under pretty good stress right there thinking about that. But this was a bold, that's the reason I was saying it is a bold statement. This was no statement secretly whispered in the dark corner. The text says that Jesus stood to make his announcement and he cried, meaning he spoke with a loud voice. He's right there. You've got to understand the courtyard and the temple area were filled with thousands and thousands of people. And he wanted, so he stood up and he cried, meaning, the, meaning he spoke out with a loud voice. He wanted everyone to hear the good news. The stunned crowd did hear, and they knew what he meant. They knew what was going on. They knew this was the Feast of Tabernacles, and they knew the seven previous days they had made a water libation ceremony because it was a big deal to them. Jesus was declaring in the boldest of ways that he was Messiah and that everyone who would believe in him would receive the gift or indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the living water. Not measured in terms of a trickling spring, the springs of Gihon, but a flowing river, even numerous rivers. Amen. Jesus was saying, in effect, I am the reality that the water in this ceremony symbolizes, the true life giver through whom the Holy Spirit is also given. He was saying, look unto me and be saved. I am the great Hosanna. He was the one. He was the one saying, I am the way of salvation. I am the deliverer. I am the great Hosanna. I am your salvation. I will give the living waters of the Holy Spirit to all who receive me as the true tabernacle of God. See, he was saying, I'm the true tabernacle of God. I'm the true temporary dwelling of God in my fleshly body here. And he said, but sadly, uh, he said, I'm the true tabernacle of God, but sadly, most of, uh, at the feast after this declaration only wondered uh, who he was, with some saying he was a prophet, others saying he was Christ. Once again, the picture of the people of Israel rejecting their salvation, standing right in their midst. It's because they were saying, will the Christ come from Galilee? That's what some of the passages prior to that say. They were saying, they had doubt in their mind. That can't be a, Jesus the Messiah can't come from Galilee. <clears throat> So, uh, you got to think about it. This is, this is a millennial prophetic word is what he's thinking, thinking here and saying. But, but there still remains, even after their rejection. Israel was rejecting him here. They rejected him when they crucified him. But there still remains a hope for Israel. And I want you to see that when you read this familiar prophecy of the Holy Spirit found in Ezekiel in, in chapter uh, 36 in verses 20 through, 24 through 27. Speaking about the renewal of Israel. And it says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring, bring you into your land, your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I believe that's a, that's a referral, or it's, it's an indication that it's a ritual for the cleansing of the unclean, but I believe that's pointing directly to sprinkling clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I believe that's an indication of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I will clean you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. So he's speaking directly to the people of Israel right there. Now we take that as, as a thing that Christian believers go through, through too. You know, we have a heart of stone too. But this is actually in the prophetic language of the Bible. This is actually pointing to the time when Israel will be re renewed. And uh, these, these words will be spoken to them, and they, they will remember these words. And even though this ceremony is not practiced today because there is no temple, the liturgy can still be found in some Jewish prayer, prayer books. One prayer said during the Sukkot holiday reads, Please, God, those who pour water before you from the springs of salvation, may they draw water, save now, and bring salvation now. See, they're saying, is what they're saying, this should, be, should tell us that some of the Jewish people of the world are still looking for the salvation promised and still praying the great Hosanna prayer. That should be our prayer also. You know, that's why we pray for Israel. 
And I'll tell you even more about that next time when we talk about the millennium. But, uh, the, you know, what happens but of the, to the people that don't love Israel and the people that hate Israel, or the people that love Israel and the people that hate Israel. We'll cover that next time. But here's a couple of scriptures to keep in mind. Romans eleven twenty three, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, he's talking about the, the uh, his, he, this is Paul talking about his, his brothers, uh, his, his brother, uh, brother Israelites. He's saying, if they do not continue in unbelief, we'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And so all Israel will be, will be saved, as is written, the, the deliverer, the great Hosanna, will come out of Zion, and he will turn away God, ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So see, Jesus is talking to them and telling them, you know, that, that he's coming back. That, I mean, they, the, he, through this, he's, what, he, what he's saying, the Old Testament prophets are saying, my covenant is with them, and I'm going to take away their sin one day, and they're going to be my people once again. So there's hope for Israel. And, uh, boy, there's, there's so much more. Next time we'll, we'll talk about Next time when we get in part two, we'll talk about the other. I told you there were two rituals involved where Jesus is, is, uh, is uh, highlighted in that. I want to, we'll see that in the next uh, session as, uh, as we get into that. But one last scripture I want to just give to you. You know, that offer, even at the, at the, end, of, even at the end of Revelation, uh, Jesus is, is saying more about this, this, this uh, rivers of living water. Listen to what he says in Revelation twenty two seventeen. He said, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. See, he's, he's calling for us to take that free gift of the water of life, which is the Holy Spirit, right now, even at this moment. So, Jesus, he is the living water. He is the one that uh, gives us everything we need, nourishes our soul. All right? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, in Jesus' name, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the word, for the word that shows us all these things in detail about what Jesus did and what he did for us and who he really is and, and who all these things that he has done for us, these prophetic things that are showing forth, these things that are doing even in the present tense that are related to us, Father, especially the living waters, Father, that we can drink from this living water even now if we believe in him and trust in him, that rivers of living water will flow out of our heart like rivers. So we thank you for that, Father, and we thank you that he has given his life for us and provided everything that we need. So, Father, we take this time as we study the Feast of Tabernacles, we along with just as they would have done then, we take this time to, to rejoice and be happy and joyous, Father, to think of all the great blessings that we have, the deliverance we have from the, from the bondage that we were in, the way that God has provided for us and everything that we need. We thank you for that, Father, and we bless you. We thank you, Father, that we can be we can be on the side of Israel and bless Israel by our prayers, by our help and support of them, Father. And I know because of that that you will honor the, the people that do that. You will honor the nations that do that in the last days when judgment comes. So we thank you for that, Father. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace.
Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.